Amen. Thank you, Benoit and Roy, uh, for sharing with us. And yeah, it is true, as a Christian writer once said, that pride is the mother of all sins. <laughs> I mean, it gives birth to so many other ones. That uh, he's right that the first 15 years of my life professing Christ was spent trying to figure out a way to be proud and follow Jesus, uh, to be self-righteous and follow Jesus, to be self-centered and follow Jesus, and it just never worked. Um, There's this beautiful story in Acts 17 of Paul and Silas after they'd been imprisoned and beaten in Philippi. They're released and they go to Thessalonica. And there they proclaim the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. And men and women are coming to a knowledge of the truth and being saved. And it says that the Jews were jealous. And they created an uproar and they created a mob. And they went through the city looking for Paul and the others with him. And they couldn't find them, so they grabbed Jason and they brought him before the city authorities. And I love what they said. They cried out, the men who have upset the world have come here also. That was their description of them. The men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That that really is what the gospel does, is it turns the world upside down, or rather right side up. Because what we tend not to realize is how upside down we are apart from Christ. But you start walking with them, you start listening to him, you start seeing him in action, and the things he says are ridiculous to a listening world. He'll say things like, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He'll say things through Paul like, uh, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We'll say things like, okay, it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And you just go, it's better to be poor than to be rich. And you go, okay, who talks this way? And so that's why I want to look at this together. If you want to turn to Luke 22, just to see a moment in the ministry of Jesus and a moment in his interactions with the disciples that, again, is going to turn their world upside down, which is the direction it needs to go. Because they had a certain understanding of what greatness is in the same way that we all have a certain understanding of what greatness is. I mean, here we are in Dubai, so maybe shout out some answers. What, According to Dubai, what is greatness? The what? So the tallest building, the highest, getting to the top. What else? Wealth. Just wealth. Having as much money and possessions as you can. You said another reputation, fame, glory, the approval of man, acceptance. What else? A Ferrari. So again, just a possession that makes a statement about you that again is for the glory of man. Because when I drive my vehicle around, people look, but not for the reasons they would look if it was a Ferrari. That's for sure. You know, yeah, so power or, or beauty or health or fitness or any number of things. Or think even though more specifically for the church, if influenced by the world, 
could see all the same things as the definition of greatness. Or we could put a religious spin on it that greatness is uh, we know more Bible than everybody else. Greatness is we pray more often than everyone else. Greatness is we don't sin as much as everybody else. Greatness is uh, we look better spiritually than everybody else. And so sometimes those worldly forms of greatness can take very Christianized sort of religious forms. That's why this passage in Luke 22 is going to be so important. Because we all, in some sense, struggle with the desire to be great. And so what I want you to stop for a moment and think to yourself is, what's your definition of greatness? Not what's the right definition according to the Bible, because we all generally know that. But I'd like you to ask yourself, what's your true definition? When you think about where you put your passions, where you spend your time, what you fantasize about, what you dream about, what you fiercely guard and defend in your life, how would you answer the question, what do you think it really means to be great? Where do you exert your energy? And so again, could it be your ability to just resist temptation, not fall into sin? Could it be that you would never deny Jesus Christ? You would never fall prey to the devil's schemes? Could it be the size of your ministry, the number of people who think you're great in the church, the number of men that you disciple, the quality of your marriage, the behavior of your children, that you can just walk them into church and everybody go, wow, look at those well-behaved kids. Or you walk in just terrified. What are they going to do today to expose me? All those say something about what we think greatness really is and what we think it's about. So Luke 22, verse 14, that the hour came and he, meaning Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, which is a remarkable statement. He would say, I have earnestly desired, I've eagerly wanted to eat this Passover meal with you before I fulfill it, he could say. (laughs) Before I sort of become the Passover meal. We're going to celebrate the, the remembrance of the Exodus redemption that through the blood of the Lamb, God delivered them, not just from Egypt, but from his wrath. And now he's saying, I've earnestly desired to celebrate this meal with you before I suffer, before he becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remarkable statement just to see his desire. For I tell you that I will not eat it, excuse me, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this And divide it among yourselves. So even here he is about to suffer on the eve of his betrayal. On the eve of all the disciples running away and Peter denying him. He's going to give thanks. And he's going to hand them a cup of thanksgiving. Which would have been part of the Passover meal. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it. 
And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you want to write a word there, just write substitution. It is going to give them this picture of substitution, this bread, his body, this image of his body, and he's going to break it. He's going to give it to them and say, this is, yeah, this is an emblem. This is a picture of my body that's about to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. So again, Passover was sort of wrapped up in the the old covenant of God taking this people for himself. And now he said, now we're going to have a new covenant that's going to be in my blood, not the blood of lambs and goats and not law written on tablets of stone, but a law that's going to be written on your heart that's sealed with my blood. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So you can write there just atonement. It's substitution. His body substituted for them. Atonement. His blood poured out for them to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy the holy justice of God, to provide a way for human beings to receive forgiveness and to be reconciled to God. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So you can just write there, betrayal. This, this is the way that God has determined that Jesus will be given over is through betrayal. You just think about what a sober moment. Imagine digesting your food around this table, listening to this. Jesus talking about my body about to be broken, my blood about to be spilled, my near companion about to betray me over to death. And that conversation or that statement is going to send them reeling into this, what I'll call this unfortunate and oh-so-common debate. This debate that's about to ensue among his disciples at this moment that, is, that, that we have about a hundred different ways in the life of the church that shows itself in dozens of different forms. Verse 24, And there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And I think we're meant to realize that this wasn't a random conversation. I think we're meant to realize also that Jesus wasn't their quick choice, right? Who's the greatest? Well, Jesus. Well, no, that's not what they're saying. Who is the greatest among us? They weren't actually focused upon him. They weren't actually thinking about his body, his blood, his betrayal, his words. Not even two minutes have elapsed. And they've already forgotten what he was talking about. Two minutes have gone by, and it's completely blown over their head, the meaning of the moment. They're told to remember him, herald his name, but quickly they devolve into this conversation about who's better than who, and whose rank is greater than who. But something in his words, we'll see, however, did register. We go back to verse 21 and we see, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table, is here at the table. 
And they began to question one another which of them it could be that was going to do this. That's where it started. Somebody here is going to betray me. And they start going, oh, who's that going to be? Who is the worst among us is where it starts. And then what that quickly turns into is, well, who's the greatest among us? And each man begins to submit his case for why he's not the worst. He's probably the greatest. And I think that Peter probably started this. You know, we read Mark 14, Matthew 26, and Peter's going to say something here. He's going to say, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And so they're going to start finding out, okay, who's he talking about? Who's going to betray him? And then Peter's going to say, well, well, not me. All may fall away. Yeah, Jesus, I've seen these guys in action, and they're terrible. And so I think, yeah, it could, I won't, but it could be them. And then what that provokes is now every man is going to begin to state the case. Well, well, no, no, I, not me. I'm the greatest. Not me. I'm the greatest. And so Luke chooses to order this narrative in such a way that we see the dispute right after Jesus announces his betrayal and announces that his death is coming. I think we're meant to see that. I think we're meant to notice. Luke wants us to see, look where this dispute happens. Albert Barnes, a a Bible commentator, had this to say about the passage. He says, nothing can be more humiliating than that the disciples should have had such contentions, meaning at all, but especially in such a time and place, that just as Jesus was contemplating his own death and laboring to prepare them for it, that they should strive and contend about office and rank shows how deeply seated is the love of power. How ambition will find its way into the most secret and sacred places. I love that. That ambition will find its way into the most secret and sacred places. And how even the disciples of the meek and lowly Jesus are sometimes taken over by this most base and wicked feeling. I mean, if the disciples can do it there and then, how much more do we do it? How much more will we be tempted that if in the moment when Jesus is preparing them for his death, disclosing to them what's about to happen, and immediately they're going to dispute about who's the greatest among them. It just shows how deeply seated is the love of power. How deeply seated is pride in the human condition. So I think it's worth asking, you know, why does this happen? I mean, why does this happen among us? How is it that we who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, we who have most benefited from the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who have been given the forgiveness of sins as a gift, we who have been adopted into his family by the sheer mercy of God, how on earth can we dispute about this? So I'll give you four possible reasons. Firstly, I think because we tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That's the first reason. It's just natural 
to think of ourselves more highly than that, that the idea of betraying Jesus seems like a real possibility for everybody else in the room, but not for me. Even denying the Lord seems implausible to Peter and the rest of his disciples, let alone betraying him. And if we were present, I think we would have argued in the same way. That we tend to think of ourselves, our faith, our loyalty, our strength, our ability, what we're capable of, especially in and of ourselves, way too highly. And Peter's about to learn very soon just how weak he is. That he will deny the Lord to a slave girl. To this picture of the most powerless human being on the planet. That's who we'll deny him to. And how much more will we? We tend to overestimate our ability. This is why Paul in Romans 12, he says this, Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Why would Paul feel he needs to say that? Why does he feel he needs to write to the church and God put it in the Bible, this calling that by the grace of God given to him that everyone ought not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think? Why do you think Paul feels the need to say that? You can answer. Because we naturally think more highly of ourselves than we ought, right? He's not saying just in case someday any among you ever happens to perhaps struggle with this, No, he's going to say, I'm going to charge you. I'm going to tell you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Because everything in your flesh will want to. Just that Paul would have to say that. Or again in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So the most dangerous position for any Christian is to think we stand. (laughs) is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. To think in my own strength, in my own ability. That's part of why, again, that's what we were talking about, just that example of uh, what we do with our phones and our computers and, and apps we don't have and sort of doors we don't leave open in our lives because we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We're not strong. We're not mighty. We're not great. And Paul says, let any of you who thinks he stand take heed lest you fall. And so here's a question for you to write down. In what areas of life and ministry do you think of yourself more highly than you ought? Then here's the catch. You probably have no idea. So here's the second question. Ask people around you the areas of your life and ministry where you think more highly of yourself than you ought. Who can you ask? And do you ask? But I'm just going to encourage you, ask them. Ask your wife. Ask your roommate, ask your children, ask your neighbor, ask your pastors, ask your community group members. What are the areas they see in your life that you think more highly of yourself than you ought? Because that's really helpful feedback to get insight into those kinds of vulnerabilities. So because we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, that's number one. Number two... Because we tend to move into a state of insecurity and defensiveness when life starts to go wrong. 
Because we tend to move into a sort of a posture and a state of insecurity and defensiveness when things begin to go wrong. If you've ever watched, you know, there's a, a soccer team or a rugby team that's really successful. And when they're winning and doing well, everybody's getting along great, right? But when do the relationships in the team really start to deteriorate? When what's, you start losing. You start losing, failing, getting crushed. Now what starts to happen on the team? You start to blame, point fingers, get angry, get defensive. It's not me, it's you. There's just something instinctive to the human condition that when we start to lose, when things start to fail, when starts, everything starts to fall apart, we get insecure and defensive. And so here, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who was supposed to be setting everything straight, establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And yet now for all these days, he starts talking about his death, about how he's about to be given over and crucified. That now the, the winning team is about to start being the losing team. Like Judas starts realizing, oh man, so this guy isn't like setting up the kingdom now and going to get us all rich. Well, then I'm out of here. And the disciples start hearing, okay, it's about to go south from your perspective. And somebody here is going to betray me. And now everybody's sort of scrambling to defend themselves and to assert themselves. You know, this kind of dispute, it's going to be recorded. There's going to be three times that this happens, at least that we know about in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples. It's going to be recorded at four places where they're going to have an argument specifically about who's the greatest. And you go to all four of those passages in the Bible, and the thing that's happening right before the dispute all four times is Jesus talking about his death. Every time. He starts preparing them for his death and what's about to happen, and then they get into an argument about who's the greatest. It's amazing. Because there's just something about when things begin to just on the horizon go wrong or fall apart or not go the way we want, we get defensive. We get proud. We get insecure. So I think it's worth asking you, here's another question, just how securely do you dwell in the grace of God and Jesus Christ? That even when things start to fall apart, you don't panic. That even when things start to go wrong in your marriage, you don't just start blaming everybody. When things begin to go wrong with your kids, when things begin to go wrong in your relationships, when things begin to get hard in your neighborhood or difficult in your church, that even then, when things begin to crumble, you're so secure in the grace of God and Jesus Christ that you're just willing to to absorb and trust Him in it. And when Jesus says, you know, somebody's going to fail me, we're so secure in Christ, we go, yeah, it might be me. If Jesus were to show up in the church and say, you know, somebody here is going gonna, is gonna to fail me pretty bad this week. Who do you think it's going to be? What should all of us do? All of us put up our hands, right? If we know ourselves, if we're in tune with reality, if we've paid attention to the last week of our life, it should not shock us. And when Jesus says, you know, somebody's about to fail me this week, that we go, you know, (laughs) I'll just stand up now, probably me. And so do we dwell securely enough in Christ 
Secondly, just how concerned are you with people seeing His glory rather than yours? Because again, that's part of where we get so defensive is really our, our aim when we're honest, our aim when stuff starts to crumble really gets exposed that really Christ's glory, Christ's honor is not quite as important as ours. That we're really concerned that people see our greatness more than it is that people see his greatness. Third reason I think this happens, because pronouncing our greatness in devotion to Jesus Christ tends to sound good, not bad. There's something we've sort of trained ourselves to think that telling other people just how much we love Jesus um, is a great testimony. And I think, yeah, sometimes, sure, to say, you know, I really love Jesus, to say, I really trust Jesus, you know, to say, yeah, that, that he's the one that I follow and delight in. So that could be a testimony to the glory of God in Christ, or at times it could be a testimony to our own sense of greatness. That's certainly what's happening with the disciples here. Peter's going to say, yeah, all may fall away, but not me. I'm willing to die for you. And again, that sounds really good. That sounds like a very sort of Christian thing to say. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be willing to die for Christ. We should. I'm not saying we shouldn't love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think we should. But, but I don't think that's necessarily what a good testimony means. But somewhere in the history of the church, a good testimony became predominantly proclaiming how devoted I am to Jesus rather than just proclaiming Jesus. <laughs> rather than just proclaiming what he has done, his greatness, his glory, his grace, and what it's produced in me. So proclaiming love for Jesus is certainly a wonderful thing, but I think the real testimony of God's grace really does come by declaring just how deeply he loves us, despite how poorly we love him, just how faithfully he keeps his promises to us, when we don't, just how he holds us fast in moments when we don't hold him fast. That Paul's going to say that there's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. He didn't say I was, he says I am. He says, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. So you ask Paul, Paul, why did God save you? So that he could show the world just how patient he is. That would be Paul's answer. So that people would look at him and go, whoa, Saul of Tarsus? Are you kidding? That is some kind of a patient God. Wow, that's grace if he'd save you. Now, are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? Or is something in us want to go, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, I did help a little. I mean, I'm not that, that bad. I mean, yeah, he was patient, but come on, don't, don't put me there. Or is our, is our testimony going, you know what? I don't know of a worse sinner than me. <laughs> There's no one sin I'm more acquainted with than my own. But here's why God saved me. is just so that he could prove to everybody just how patient he is. 
And what's interesting in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul's saying that, is that doesn't make him dejected. It doesn't make him go, you know, poor me, I'm terrible. What it provokes is worship. Because what Paul says next is, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the, that's what it provokes in us is worship. That's what it provokes in others is worship. But then fourth reason this happens is because we probably are more shaped by the world than we realize. That's certainly the case here when we see Jesus' response to the disciples. And so we're going to see this oh-so-common and unfortunate debate. But then we're going to see, okay, here's the Lord's response. Here's what he's going to say. And what he's going to say first is really going to suggest, you know, you're actually more worldly than you realize. There's more of the world in your life and in your heart and in this room than we realize. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Meaning, this is how the world sees greatness. Greatness is having lordship. Greatness is having dominion. Greatness is being over everyone. Greatness is being at the top. And then to add insult to injury and then making everybody call you a benefactor. Which means... You're just a blessing to everybody under you. You just, you just benefit everybody under you. So not only do you exercise lordship over everybody, but then you want honor for it. And, and for everybody to proclaim just what a blessing it is to be under your, your lordship. And then Jesus says, verse 26, I love this, but not so with you. Not here. Not among my disciples. Not in my church, not in my house, not among those I've redeemed by my my blood. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, meaning the one of least honor, the one of least significance, the one of least position. And not just that, and the leader as one who serves. And again, this is just turning things upside down. And the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Of course, it's rhetorical. What's the answer? Well, the one who reclines at table. That's the one who's inherently greater. That's the one with greater position, greater power, greater honor. So there is such a thing as greater status, greater position. But then Jesus says, But I am among you as the one who serves. Which is to say, there's no one at the table greater than me. Yet I am among you as the one who serves. And so though I am the greatest, the way my greatness is expressed is by being the least among you. By being the one who Serves. So not so among you. Become like the youngest, like the servant. And then I am the one among you as one who serves. Those are his words. That's how the Lord is going to respond to this moment of dispute. Now, in these words, I think it's incredibly gracious. Because if you're the Son of God incarnate, if you have the power to give life and to take it, if you could incinerate the room in the moment, what would you be tempted to do? 
you know what? I thought we'd made progress these years of ministry. I thought we'd gotten somewhere. And apparently, on the eve of the cross, I'm saying all this, and you're going to still argue about who's the greatest. You know what? Let's start over. And he just wipes them all out and goes, gets 12 new guys. And so it's a remarkable grace. It's a remarkable statement of patience that, that Jesus is even going to model in his words. He's just going to, he's going to teach them. He's going to love them. He's not going to scorn them and shame them and demean them. He's going to instruct them in the truth. He's going to say, you know, here's how the world is, but not here. Not among us. Not in my household. But then in addition to that, we're also going to see his work. So we have his words, but then we're going to have his work. And for that, turn to John chapter 13. We'll just take a peek. Not just what Jesus says, but what he does. Verse 13, or I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of Passover, verse 2, during supper. So it could be kind of there in the room, most assume it maybe is, but it's somewhere around these events that are happening. Somewhere around these kinds of disputes that are happening, Jesus is going to do this at supper. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. That's an important detail. Meaning this is, Simon's, or, or, or the Judas Iscariot is already resolved to betray Jesus. The devil's already entered. And then Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, is, and was going back to God, again, in really important context, knowing that all things had been given into his hands, all authority, all that, that again, he, through him the world was made. And when you think about it, if God were to put all things into your hands, if he was to give you everything, what would you do with it? And so here's Jesus, all things, he, he knows all things have been put into his hands. He knows where he came from, that he came from God and was going back to God. He knows where he's going. That's so important for us. Do we know where we've come from? Do we know that we're born from above? And do we know where we're going? Because that really affects what we do in the church. And he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet which was the task of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest slave of a household. Like even the, the person who was the, the, the owner of the household would not do that for their guests. That was something you assigned to the lowest ranking human in your household is to wash the feet of the guests. And here Jesus is going to rise knowing that all things are in his hands. No, he's, he's come from heaven, from God. He's going back there. And with all of that in mind, he's going to disrobe. He's going to sort of put a towel around his waist, get on his knees, and watch their grimy feet. And I think it's just, it's such an incredible even reminder. You know, Roy read from Philippians 2, and I'm so thankful he read it because it brought this to mind. You think of Philippians 2, that even though Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but rather it says emptied himself and being found in the likeness of man he took the form of a man but not just any man but a bond slave and became obedient to the point of death not just any death death on the cross in other words this is the pattern of Jesus's life this is the pattern of his life he goes down he leaves glory and he enters in to what is not glory into the mess and he gets on his knees and he serves his whole life is a picture of that attitude his his whole way of ministry is a picture of that and what he's about to do in the days to follow is just going to be the punctuation mark to that attitude that the ultimate act of condescension is going to come and being mocked and spat upon and tortured and crucified in the place of sinners. And here he's just going to give them this taste of it. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wash, wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now. I love that. We really don't. It's just so incomprehensible. It's like, Lord, help me understand this. Again, it's upside down to the world. You don't understand it now, but afterward you will understand. And then Peter, of course, proves Jesus's point by saying, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, well, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I love that, that our fellowship is based upon me serving you. That our, our union and communion is going to be based on me serving you. And this is the Son of God in the flesh. This is God dwelling among us. And it's just so shocking that, that none of the disciples can comprehend this. Peter is like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, it's so palpably uncomfortable. It's so socially inappropriate. It's so unlike anything they've ever seen or encountered. And again, he's given them so many tastes of this to this point. Remember when children come to Jesus and they're climbing on him? What do the disciples do? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Get, get the kids away. Rabbi here. Rabbi here. And what does Jesus say? Now let them, let them come to me. For to these belong the, such as these belong the kingdom. He's going to go sit with a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well. And the disciples are going to come back from getting food. And they're like, whoa, what, what are you doing? Yet a moral woman is going to weep at his feet in Simon the Pharisee's house. And no one there is going, yeah, this makes sense. It's just perplexing. It's confusing. Yet here's Jesus going, behold your God. Behold your God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is how we do it. This is how heaven works. This is the kingdom you're being brought into. And to our point tonight, this is greatness. This is what greatness is. And so even we talked earlier about, you know, we're going to get to heaven where it's going to be a place of perpetual worship. It'll also be a place of perpetual service. But the difference is we'll be glorified. We'll love it in a way we've never loved it before. We'll glory in it in a way we've never gloried in it before. But don't we want to start preparing now? Don't we want to start sort of getting ready? We don't want sort of death and heaven to be too shocking. 
especially when he gives us the opportunity now in the body of Christ to, as he's about to say, to do as he does. Of course, Simon Peter, Mr. Extreme, said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head also. But Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. That's referring to Judas, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. In verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. What a statement. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. That's exactly who I am. I am the teacher. I am the Lord. I am king. He's going to say to them, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Can't be more plain and clear than that, right? That if I, being your teacher and your Lord, have done this, how much more you, who aren't the teacher and the Lord, should do with one another? I've left you this an example to follow. So in your marriage, in your family, in your ministry, in your relationships to others, do you assume a posture of joyful servant? And I throw in the word there, joyful, because I think that's how Jesus did it. I don't think he's rising from supper going, oh gosh, here we go. Putting a towel on, huffing and puffing, getting on his knees, wow, this is lousy. I can't, okay, I'll just fight through. So it's not sort of grumbling and complaining servant Jesus. It's joyful servant Jesus. His heart's in it. And so just ask, so, so in your marriage, I mean, are you the servant? Does your wife experience this picture of Jesus? Do your kids see this picture of Jesus? Community group, church, again, not for the display of our glory, but as the display that God's grace really is working this way in our life, that his spirit really is ruling and leading us. Another question, in what direction do you exert most of your energy, climbing up or climbing down? I mean, really, where do you exert your energy? Where do you exert your time? Why are you here? Why am I here? Is it to go up or to go down? Because again, which way is the world trying to go? It's all about going up and climbing up. And anyone who wants to follow Jesus and climb up will encounter Jesus, but it will only be in passing because he's going the other way. But to really walk with him, it's, yeah, it's a movement down. But what's interesting is, as he's saying here, and that's greatness. This is greatness is. Thirdly, when you're humiliated or condescended upon or dishonored or unnoticed in your service to others, what do you say to yourself? What do you say to God in those moments? Do you say, wow, this is so good for me. So good. I need this. It's been one of the most helpful things for me to painfully learn to say in my family when I'm dishonored or humiliated or in church dishonored. Just to learn to say, Lord, this is so good for me. So good for me. 
Just to, this just so puts pride to death. Because nobody's soul was ever destroyed by humility. But souls all over the world is being destroyed by pride. And so just what do you say to God in those moments? And just learning to say, Lord, this is so good for me. So yeah, in your relationships, in your time of the Word, in your prayer, and just these will be the things to reflect upon, to take Philippians 2, to take Luke 22, to take John 13, to say, Lord, help me see what greatness really is. And help me believe this. By your power, help me go down and love it. And especially as men in the church, especially as those who are going to be commissioned with leading in our homes. Because he says, okay, you want to be a leader? You want to be great? You got to be a servant. Let me pray for us. Father, we behold Jesus and we praise him. We behold the Lord Jesus Christ and we give him glory. We see what you call greatness and we say, Father, give it. That's what we want. Lord, Spirit, make us this way. Make us, define us, mark us by this kind of servant-heartedness. Give us joy in self-sacrifice. Give us joy in humility. Give us joy in following Jesus to the bottom, knowing that that's where greatness is. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.